Hello, lovelies. Welcome to a new episode of the Journey to Lovely podcast. I am your host, Claudrine Arnell, and in honor of Women's History Month, this is an exclusive interview with Holocaust survivor, phenomenal woman, and author, Eva Perlman. As many of you know, the Holocaust is a genocide carried out by the Nazis during World War II in which six million Jews were murdered. But what we could never know are the myriad stories behind those tragic numbers. And so it is in moments like these that seem to be divine appointments that we can hear the real life accounts of survivors. And so this month's lovely icon is an inspirational survivor who is sharing her story that is not only her miraculous testimony, but a part of our history. Eva, who's with us today, will share her historical story on surviving one of the darkest periods of human history. Dear Eva, welcome. It is such an honor to have you on the Journey to Lovely podcast. Thank you so much for accepting to share your monumental story with us. Hello. Hello. Hi. How are you? I am honored. I'm honored to be interviewed by you. Oh, thank you so much. It's truly an honor on my end and a true pleasure. And so can you please share with us? our listeners, a bit about yourself and your experience growing up during such gruesome times. Um, Well, I was born in Germany in 1932, a few months before Hitler came to power. And my parents actually suffered a lot more during the war than I did. I was a child, I was seven years old when the the war started. And I was a very immature child. I mean, my grandchildren know more at eight than I knew at even 15. So my parents really went through uh, very, very dark times. And so did I, but I didn't realize how bad they were because they were really shielding us probably from their deep anxieties. Um, My father, very quickly lost the uh, right to work. He was a patent attorney. And fortunately, he had a friend in Paris, a a colleague, patent attorney in France, who invited him to come over if things became difficult in Germany. And my father had the wisdom and the courage and the, 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 the luck, the opportunity, and he seized it. So he already went to France, to Paris, in August of 1933. My mother was still a medical student and she was thrown out of the university in October uh, as, uh, as because she was Jewish. And so she and I went to um, join my father in Paris in the fall in October or November of 33. So I was 18 months old. And I grew up in France, so we went through the war in France. So my grandparents, one set of grandparents uh, went off. Um, my father got him, them tickets to go to Shanghai on a boat out of Marseille. And when my grandparents, my mother's parents arrived 
in Marseille, they instead boarded a, an illegal ship to like the Exodus was at the time. And, and so they were in Palestine and they ended their lives in Israel uh, later on. My other grandparents joined us in August of 39. They came to Paris. I don't know how they managed to leave Germany at that late date, but they came to live with us near Paris, where we lived in a rented villa. Uh, then my father was asked to take some uh, papers down south, and he took me and my next brother. I got two brothers in France, born in 35 and 39. And my father was charged to take some archives out of the office and take them south because his boss, Monsieur Placereau, whom we owe a lot, by the way, um, did not want some of the archives to fall into the hands of the Nazis who, who were already starting to invade France from the north. Um, and actually, in my book that you will hear about later, um, I, I have all the details of everything. So you might have lots of questions. They are all answered in the book, I think. Um, so we, we, lived, we lived in a little castle that my father rented, an old castle. Uh, an old woman was uh, hired to take care of us while he was working. And we escaped, he escaped death from a bomb that fell uh, near us and um, a piece of the bomb during a bombing fell through the glass roof of the veranda under which he had his desk and his desk chair and that piece of bomb went through the glass roof and straight through his chair. Fortunately, we were in the basement as soon as we heard the sirens going that bombs were coming and thank God because he could have been killed on the spot. Then I was taken down with acute appendicitis and I was operated within a few hours. The doctor said to my father, we, we got it just in time. We didn't have antibiotics yet and it was about to burst. So I don't know what would have happened if it had. I wouldn't be here. Miracles, miracles. My whole life is guided by miracles. Um, and also, before we go any further, I want to make sure that I tell how much we are, how, how grateful we are and how much we owe to several French people, non-Jews, who helped us. In France at the time, there was a lot of anti-Semitism. Things haven't changed much. And uh, there were many French people who were good to the Jews and who helped to, to hide them. And there were also uh, French people who were evil and who betrayed them to the Nazis. And those poor people were picked up in the middle of the night in their beds and taken to the nearest camp, which probably was Auschwitz. Incredible. So um, my, my grandfather, my, my grandparents stayed with my mother and the baby. She had this baby from April 39. She, they stayed in Paris until it was too dangerous. My grandfather died of pneumonia suddenly, which was a blessing, uh, although it was sad. Uh, but then my, my mother only had the baby and her elderly mother-in-law, who was not well either. And she had a lot, lots of abscesses all the time, and I remember. So anyway, they, they came to join mm -hmm. us, and we all went to Lyon, uh, where my father rented an apartment above a large um, 
carpenter uh, uh, workshop. It was a big carpenter, and we rented their apartment at the top. They were living downstairs, and we lived at the top. Um, <clears throat> and we all managed, by by miracle, by miracle, to get together back in Lyon. And we lived there for a year, so that took us to about 42. About 40, the end of 41. And my mother figured out that she wanted to take the children to a shelter somewhere. Lyon was becoming too dangerous. The Germans were arriving. And she found a home for children in the mountains in southern France, uh, southeast of Grenoble. So if, mm -hmm. you, if you see the map, uh, and in the Vercors, that, that whole area is called Vercors. It was a high plateau in which the mm -hmm. resistance was also, the, the French resistance. resistance. Yeah. It I'm was a high plateau that was difficult to accede because uh, of the mountains and narrow roads and things. And so it was very difficult to attack. And that's why the Maquis was centered there. And we were also in a little village there, which in normal times had a thousand inhabitants. And at that time, there were 2,000 people living there. So my mother, anyway, found a home for children after going to 30 of them. They were all full. They couldn't take three more children. The last one she found in Autran was willing to take the three of us. And they knew we were Jews, and they took them at the risk of their lives. And Madame Montanix, Montanix was very kind and she said, don't worry, Madame, we take your children. We will, we will take good care of them. And so the three of us were alone in that pension, pension d'enfants, mm -hmm. uh, for ten, eight or ten months. Um, mm. and, uh, so, so, and then my, and my mother came to visit us every so often when she could. And this last time, she, when she was still in Autran, she got a message from my father, stay up there, I'm coming. So my father had decided it was time for him to leave Lyon as well. Uh, and mm. so he came up to Autran and they rented uh, an apartment above uh, a, a couple. Um, and we call it La Maison Jaune, the yellow house, because it was always yellow. So all my life, we talked about La Maison Jaune. We lived upstairs mm -hmm. and they lived downstairs. Uh, and, and my mother had to set up shop and she said, I have to go to Lyon to pick up a few things from my kitchen. I don't have enough stuff in here to, to uh, take care of five people, the, the two of them and the three of us. And she went at the risk of her life to Lyon for the day. And she, I mean, lots of things happened for which there is no time, yeah. many, many things. Um, Absolutely. And she, she picked up all the things and she had tea with her, our landlady downstairs, who had actually taken into her house our radio uh, to, share, to shield it from the Germans in case they came. What she didn't realize was, of course, that if the Germans came and went to our apartment and saw all the Jewish stuff, they would uh, burn the house and kill the landlord and landlady, of course. 
But anyway, she did what she could and she took our silver. My parents had beautiful uh, uh, silverware. I mean, real silver. And she, she buried it in the yard. We had a big yard where we grew vegetables before we left. And she, she protected, she, <laughs> she dug them into the yard so, so as to protect them. Anyway, my mother almost missed her her train, but she didn't. By the by, by a hair, she could have missed the train. And as the train passed on its own um, bridge over the River Rhone, it, uh, parallel to the bridge that she had just crossed, that was for pedestrians and cars and things, she had run across that bridge, gotten to the station, and jumped in onto the 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 train when the guy was whistling. And as, she, as the train passed on its own bridge, parallel to the one she had just crossed running one way, and the train went the other way, so he, it passed over the Rhone again, and she was still out of breath and taking off her hat when she looked out the window, and she saw that the Germans had cordoned off the two sides of the, the two ends of the bridge and examined all the papers. My mother would not have made it. Wow. I mean, she ran across that bridge three minutes before. Uh, and Incredible. she had uh, her, her carte d'identité was still Gutmann, last name Gutmann, uh, born in Gliesen, oh. Germany, uh, with a lot of uh, uh, utensils and kitchen stuff um, carrying uh, on, uh, <laughs> in her heavy load. On her, she yes. She would have not made it. They would have said she is maquis or resistance and, 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 and Jewish, uh, I mean. What was she, she was yeah. the, the what was she doing in France? A complete target. She had nothing to hide. Yes. What, why was she in France? Anyway. Uh, oh my goodness! And that makes me think on my second question, if I true. can go ahead. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I recently learned uh, that the founding family of um, you know, one of my favorite brands, Bon Maman, despite the dangers, uh, they hid and saved. A few Jewish families in a village called Briard sur Serre, yeah. and so this truly shows the heroic uh, nature, you know, of humanity and some people in the midst of real hellish evil. And can you you touched on it a bit, but like, can you share um, your interactions with the French at this time in France? Well, my parents spoke French, of course, with a German accent. Um, and we children, we spoke French. We learned it in school. I mean, I started learning French in kindergarten. I only spoke German until I went to, to school at five. <coughs> My brothers learned French right away. Um, and I mean, we, the, the people in Autran were very kind. They knew that half the population there was in hiding and uh, nobody betrayed anybody. I mean, we were so fortunate. Uh, and we owe our lives to several of these wonderful people uh, who were not Jewish and who helped us at the risk of their lives. Incredible. And I like that you're emphasizing that by helping, they were risking their oh, yes. lives. So oh, they're yes. truly, you know, um, and, yeah. heroic in that yeah. sense. Yeah. And, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, so oh, so my, my father uh, uh, went from 
from farm to farm three times a week on his bicycle to pick up an egg here and a half a, uh, and a cup of milk there and using his cigarette and alcohol tickets as part of payment. Um, and Monsieur Placero, by the way, his boss in Paris, uh, continued to send work to my father uh, through a secretary out of Lyon who came once a week to bring him files to work on and he gave her back the files that he had worked on and he was paid half his salary during the whole week, uh, whole uh, stay in the mountains in hiding. I mean, we owe, we owe him our lives uh, and our, our, our um, yeah, surviving. That we're surviving. able to have yeah. money to eat, you know. Yeah, and sustain yourselves yeah. through such tragic times. Incredible. And so if we can touch, remember, this is, we're going into the end of Women's History Month. And so as a woman who has survived and overcome, you know, such a gross violation against humanity, what did this teach you about yourself? What did you learn about yourself? Um, never give up and pursue, I, I mean, uh, uh, just be kind, be kind, be grateful, mm-hmm. above all, be grateful, be grateful for your life, uh, for the six million who were massacred, they had no future, and all the million and a half children, God only knows how many of those children would have become scientists and, and uh, poets and musicians, who knows, just be grateful for your life and try to be kind and do the best you can. Beautiful. Thank you so much. And I mean, if we can go back maybe yeah, I, a yeah. bit. I, I would like to go you back know? To, to, to one thing, mm-hmm. to two little things during yes. the war. Uh, yes. We survived until, of course, when the Americans came to Normandy, we were all so happy. But still, we, we were in the middle of German invasion, still. Uh, but on the 14th of July, we went on a picnic. And as we were eating at the top of the mountain, we saw, we saw f- uh, f- planes flying over us. And my father even said, I hope these are American planes. And then we watched them go over us and they started bombing our, our valley down below. So those were obviously not American planes and we dashed down the hill and my father the next day with two of his men friends uh, enlisted into the underground army, into the, the Maquis, the French resistance forces, and left the women and the children to, to deal, uh, to uh, deal, um, what is the word, for themselves, mm. to fend for themselves. Fend and for then, them, yeah. we, although we had many false alarms that the Germans were coming up the mountain from Grenoble. Uh, they finally did when the, after the men had gone. That was also a, a miracle because those men looked more Jewish than their women or their children. And uh, uh, thank God they were gone. So the Nazis came and two Nazis came to our landlord downstairs and my mother was called by the landlord to do the interpreting. <laughs> God. And I cannot imagine my mother coming down the stairs to face two, two Nazis 
and having to interpret for our landlord what they wanted. They wanted a, a room to sleep in the house. So our landlord said to my mother, well, madame, since your husband is away, why don't you give your bedroom and I'll give you a cot to put in the attic so you can go sleep in the attic. And so we had two Nazis sleeping next door to three Jewish children for two weeks. And my mother did the interpreting with such skill and courage, such skill. She spoke the worst German possible, making, not making grammatical sentences, just putting words together, pronouncing them the French way, that they never had an inkling that she spoke German as well as they did. And thank God they left. And in a great hurry, oh, wow. so they didn't have time to burn the house down, which is what they always did. That is incredible. What a story. Oh. And her strategy really worked. Yes. Now, after the Germans were gone, and my mother still mm -hmm. had no, no news from my father. And at one point, she received a message that he wanted her to take some clothes, some male clothes, and, and bring some money to them. He was, in fact, somewhere else. And we learned later that the Maquis had been dissolved and the men were fending for themselves and trying to come back to Autran. But the whole area was still full of Germans everywhere. And so she, she uh, rented a bicycle and with a young friend of hers, they took off and they had uh, a godsend accident on the road going down after the pass where they ate their breakfast their, their their sandwich they came down the mountain and she realized her brakes didn't work and after a few seconds of terrible fear what is going to happen now where will i go either in the abyss on one side or against the rock on the other they had an accident both of them in a hairpin curve on the gravel and they were pulled uh, a few yards, you know, on the gravel, and their trip was mm -hmm. over. And I oh mean, my and my book, in my book, I have the whole story written by my mother, actually. Right. Uh, but that accident was providential. I mean, you cannot believe okay. that there is no God. Uh, this accident kept them from falling into the German hands. They were all down below where they would have gone and they didn't know it. And, and also they would have taken the wrong road uh, the, from the one that my father was trying to come up as quickly as possible to keep my mother from going on that trip because he knew how dangerous it was. And fortunately, and he found her on the road. I mean, <laughs> everything is so interconnected it is, yeah, it is, in a miraculous it is so way miraculous that if, if you see it in a movie you will think oh it's a nice story you know it, it, it was is. a true this story what... it was a true story it was a god sent accident that kept my mother from continuing with her trip and for my father to this... find her how incredible and the fact that in each scenario, we're talking about split seconds, yes. minutes that are, you know, that would be life changing. Yes. And the fear, the fear that is mind blowing. In the, yeah, right, right. Because you're dealing with life or death, yeah. you know. And, and, yeah. and down below where I, my mother was heading, down below there, 
the, the Germans had destroyed several communities. Uh, one is Vassieux. I don't know if you have ever heard the name Vassieux, but to me it spells yes. death. They killed from the newborns to the centenarians. They killed all the surgeons who were trying to save people in a cave, a natural cave that they had found. They, they, the, the whole area was completely destroyed. Yeah. That's who was a bloodshed. Yeah, and that is where my mother was heading. <laughs> oh no, oh, okay. wow. So wow. the story in itself takes about 30 minutes to tell. So that's why even when I tell <laughs> yes, the story so and I have an yes. hour, I just tell people if you want the whole story, just just read my book. <laughs> Please get absolutely. And so, you know, I still want you to touch on very briefly, of course, um, what it was like. If you can share with our listeners a day, you know, in your life. I know you were young, but during that time, under uh, the regime de Vichy, living in hiding, death surrounding, your parents trying their best to keep their children alive like what do you recall well i don't time? recall much except uh, certain certain uh, certain memories you know uh, i was able to go to school they, they had a boys school there and they took in a few girls because of the cir circumstances um, <clears throat> i remember when the germans came i mean we i don't remember what we did all day long uh, what I was in 43, I was 11. Um, so I, I really, I apparently played with the daughter of our landlord and landlady. She remembered, I didn't. I saw them uh, a few years ago. We got together 70 years after we, we said goodbye. <laughs> we had never corresponded wow. uh, and we went to see them in Autran. And it was an incredible reunion. And they are the ones who told us that. We asked them, weren't you afraid when the Germans were in our house? And, and, and they said, no, we knew we had Nazis in our house, so nobody would bother us. And I said, weren't you afraid oh, that the, they would way. burn the house down when they left? And they said, no, because they, they, they left in such a hurry, they didn't have time. I mean, you know. Wow. <laughs> This is mind-blowing for me. I'm, I'm looking for somebody who wants to make a movie. If, if they read my book and they feel there, there's a movie in there. I, I would agree. We need to get the word out because this is the stuff movies are made of. Every split second, there's something that keeps and you it's at based the edge on of your chair. Events, so I, mean, I agree. Yeah. And it's right. It is obviously and and so i mean growing up i remember uh reading anne frank's yes. journal and was really touched by her candid insights and yet very deep thoughts yeah, for a young girl you know living far far <laughs> <laughs> through such horrific times but do you you know would you say there are any similarities between your experiences well, we were outside. No, they were trapped in an attic. They didn't see the sun for two years. They never walked anywhere. I mean, they were completely secluded. They couldn't speak during the day. They couldn't even move for fear that somebody would hear somebody walking above. So, it, no, we were we were living in 
I mean, me as child, uh, in fair freedom. We, I could play outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was sent by my mother to go fetch milk uh, from, an, uh, from a, a neighboring farmer. Uh, things, I went to school uh, and we had just, just enough to eat, not to starve. Uh, so, I mean, right. my parents did a good job mm-hmm. uh, shielding us from their fears and anxieties. Absolutely. And so, moving forward, one of the books I read during uh, my law studies is called The Healing of Nations, The Promise and Limits of Political mm-hmm. Forgiveness. It kind of highlights the theory of political uh, forgiveness, actually. And so, it states that the ethic of forgiveness can contribute to the healing of nations by fostering peace, moral order, and the promotion of national reconciliation. So, as a Holocaust survivor, what is your view on this and how do you view Germany today? Well, that's an interesting question because my my whole attitude has totally changed in the last few years. I grew up with a huge inferiority complex, feeling I was a second-class citizen in growing up in France as a Jewish person and born in Germany, two strikes against me. And I grew up with, and I lived all my life with hatred of everything German. I couldn't hear German spoken. I couldn't speak it myself. Uh, I didn't buy anything made in Germany. I mean, I never went to Germany until in my early 80s, I befriended, I made some German non-Jewish friends. One was the one of the editors of my book, and the other one, um, Uh, and two others whom I met in Auschwitz, actually, on the March of the Living. They were German non-Jews coming to Auschwitz on Holocaust Day to march with the Jews out of Auschwitz, which we do every year. It's called the March of the Living. And I met them in Auschwitz and we became the best of friends. She grew up, she is part of a, a Christian organization which helps Jewish causes. And I know that they have a magazine that is a fundraiser for a home, uh, an old age home in Haifa in Israel. They do everything they can to help Jews all their lives because they feel the guilt and the responsibility of what happened during the Holocaust. And one of them who lives in Berlin invited me to come to Berlin. And after thinking about it, I thought, okay, why don't I? Let's see what happens. I don't know how I will feel, but it's time that I went. If I get invited, I have, you know, I'm a big believer in opportunity. Opportunity doesn't knock. It creeps by. You have to, to, to open your eyes and ears because otherwise you miss, miss opportunities. Anyway, you always have a choice. You can say yes or no. So I went to, to Berlin and they were extremely nice. She actually became a teacher of history and of the Holocaust um, to counteract the past. And although her, fa- her father was an SS who died in Russia in the last days of the war uh, and who was a terrible anti-Semite, uh, but she, she um, grew up uh, she went to Israel many times. She lived in a kibbutz. 
and she took me around Berlin. She showed me the building where my father had his office because we had his address. She showed me the university where my mother went to school, to medical school. They took me even to the, to the village where my mother was born that used to be in Germany, which is, and it's now in Poland. And I had a wonderful time. They even made a Friday night Sabbath dinner with candles, with challah, and everything according to all the rules. And oh, that's beautiful. Uh, I, I really came back. I mean, I'm, I'm almost crying right now. Um, I decided it's time to put that hatred away. Not for the Nazis of the war. I just cannot. I, you talk about um reconciliation or about forgiveness there are things that i can't forgive it's it's very beautiful to say that it's it's good to forgive and it's wonderful and it's courageous and it's very beneficial but when you this is something i cannot forgive i mean 50 people in of my my parents relatives and friends died during the war either of bombings or starvation or in the camps. And how can you forgive that? How can you forgive the, the, the will, willful des destruction of a people? So yes, it's important to remember. It's important to tell the story. We mustn't forget because we hope it will never happen again. But to forgive what they did I can't. I can't. But I don't go around either thinking of it all the time. <laughs> I'm still thinking of the right. future. I, don't, I only think of the past when I'm asked to tell my story, <laughs> which I'm asked yeah. to, to tell oh, yes. quite often. But um, And those people in, in Germany think... have been wonderful to us. And the one who invited us to Berlin, she came to my granddaughter's wedding in Israel four years ago or five years ago no six years ago um, and she is like part of the family you know I've made those wonderful friends so how can you still continue to hate Germans the Germans of today are not the ones who perpetrated all the crimes well said and I honor your journey of healing and I know each day you your story will help others who are going through their own different traumas yeah, it's, to it's, believe that there's still hope. Yes, to yes. We, we, must, we must hope, otherwise mm -hmm. why, why live? You, you cannot live without hope. Yes. And gratitude. And it reminds <laughs> and me... Yes, my, that's my mom's yeah. work, gratitude. Hope and yeah. gratitude, well said. And so I had a question because I heard the account, the testimony of Polish Holocaust survivor, uh, Mrs. Tova Friedman. And in her poignant testimony, it was so touching. Um, she said, education without morals is completely worthless because yeah. she was explaining how many Nazis leaders, you know, were scientists, MDs, yeah. doctors, psychologists, lawyers who used terror to promote yeah. their reign of death. So, you know, what are your thoughts on this? Sentence? Well, yes, that is perfectly true. I also think that if you stop learning, you die. So I continue learning. I mean, mm. I learn all the time. 
uh, and continue to be interested mm-hmm. in what's happening around me and um, uh, and also um, it was Mazarik Mazarik he was the prime the prime minister the the oh, not the chancellor what do you call him prime yeah the prime, yeah Mazarik yeah. was the prime minister of Poland or or one of those countries Hungary or somewhere and he said wisdom comes from having learned everything and forgotten it all <laughs> which is interesting oh, yes <laughs> which is which resonates with what you know we're saying exactly and so that's interesting because even today you know given the current global climate there has been i've seen it all over a certain rise of yes. hate crimes racial yes. hate crimes and you know uh and and thankfully there's also a counter movement yes. uh, against that to raise awareness to take a stand you know against such violations and when we hear stories like yours it really puts a fire in me to educate people and so um what would you say to this younger generation that are being exposed to certain narratives of hatred and and bigotry and and and, and prejudice um, try to get to say? know people whom whom you think you don't like and i i made this discovery once uh, i was in a networking group and talking with somebody uh, it was a cocktail party and i saw this woman come in a very heavy woman uh, walking very slowly with a walker and she obviously came to network because this was a networking group and i was not at all attracted to her so i made a, and then she was staying she was sitting by the wall she did not mix in she didn't know whom to speak to so i went to her and i said hello and i introduced myself and she introduced herself and we had the, the most interesting conversation and she turned out to be a wonderful interesting person not at all the first impression that i got when she came in and that was my prejudice so i learned firsthand yes, yes. you know if if you see somebody whom you are not attracted to or you think they are they are bad or or stupid or whatever mm-hmm. go to them and find out say hello mm-hmm. i love that because we all can be capable of having yeah. we, what they call are, um yeah. biases you know we, we all can all are. be biased, all biased. unconsciously yes. yes right and it's when laws uh are put into place that promote these biases also that you know end up destroying yeah. countries you know when you when the biases are on a micro level between each other you know in our interpersonal relationship that's already yeah. bad but when they grow to like a national institutional yeah. level yeah it's very scary what goodness, is happening wow. now it's very scary mm-hmm. and you know when i when yes, i visited I Majdanek in Poland that that concentration camp is so well preserved that it could start again tomorrow it has all the bunks it has the crematoria it has everything to start again and that that well that's what they need to burn well, down there, in this, my opinion it's a museum now i mean it is for the next the oh, new generations 
to visit to see what the camp was like and with guides and teachers and and uh, historians who tell them what happened there and actually this trip Correct. to okay. Poland to visit concentration camps is more valuable in five days than if you sat on a university bench for a year learning about the Holocaust. Those five days. Oh, oh now I remember. Days in, yes. Six days in, in Poland every year for the students are an eye-opener like, like no other. Auschwitz is a museum. Absolutely. Where you see the mountains is, yes. of hair, and the actually... mountains of eyeglasses, the mountains of prostheses. People came with, with no arms or no legs. And everything is preserved behind glass. It's, it's, it's very, very moving. Wow. And the students, the very, students who come back from there, they, they are completely changed. They come with a, a new understanding of what it means to be Jewish and what it means to further education of the next generations so that we don't forget. Yes, so that's what I would like to say. When I said burn down, I think what needs to be burned down are symbolically these destructive hateful ideas because it's always these ideas in these narratives and propaganda yes. that creates the way we view each other when we're all one and so because we have literally 10 minutes left and so to touch on your amazing autobiography titled Eva's Uncommon Life, Guided by Miracles. So listeners, you've been with us for almost an hour now. You can tell that Eva had a miraculous and is still living a miracle-filled life. So please, Eva, before we get cut off, we have about 10 minutes. Can you give us a brief synopsis of your autobiography and share where we can purchase it and support Thank you. Uh, yes, well, after we survived the war, um, we, we went back to Paris and I started my normal life and normal schooling. Um, I met my husband. I, oh, I became a nurse because I wanted to go to Israel to live. I lived for a year in Israel when I was 18 after I graduated from high school. And a year later, uh, I decided I wanted to go live in Israel because in Israel I didn't have to be embarrassed about being Jewish or born in Germany. And uh, then I met my husband. Again, uh, love at first sight, like you would not believe. It was absolutely instantaneous. And after... 24 hours he was talking about possible marriage <laughs> so we were married in five weeks I mean our poor parents what they went through it's all in the book <laughs> then he started his, he started his postgraduate work at Oxford again he was admitted to Oxford by absolute miracle at the last minute in social anthropology so two years in Oxford and then he had to go do research uh, to write his PhD thesis in social anthropology uh, in a, pr a primitive tribe. Of course, there are euphemisms now, pre-technological societies or something like that. But so, and he was lucky right. enough to get a job in Uganda 
uh, at African Institute of Social mm-hmm. Research to go do some research among the Toro people yes. of Western Uganda. So we took off with our daughter who was 21 months old to Uganda. Mm-hmm. live in the bush for a year and a half mm-hmm. and then uh, a year and a half in the city and I had two children in Kampala <laughs> thanks to a medicine man my whole African chapter <laughs> is completely different from the rest of the book and, and it, I think it makes the book because they have so many different things I've, I've done so many different things in my life including living in Africa for three years and then um, we went, so we went, so That's when he got his PhD, instead he got an offer from Jerusalem and he also got an offer from Berkeley. So he decided to go to Berkeley and uh, I'm glad we never made it to Israel. It's, it is tough living in Israel. So uh, although it's, it's good to live there, but it's tough. And after, so in the 60s, 1963, we went to Berkeley. And if you know the 60s, you're in the in Berkeley and in all the campuses and in in the U, in the United States were quite troublesome with the Vietnam War and the people with the conscience uh, protesters and so we ended up in 1970 going to live in Canada where he got a job at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada, and unfortunately, sadly, Mel passed away. At, at the age of 55 in 1988 in Canada of leukemia. Sorry. So, thank you. So, so in 89, I came to Los Angeles where my eldest daughter lived uh, and where she was married to a Jew and having a Jewish life because my other two children intermarried and I had absolutely no connection with their parents, their in, my, my children's in-laws. So I decided to come here to to Los Angeles and I've been here since. So now I've been widowed as long as I was married, 32 years. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, so, it goes to oh, our and, last and question or last oh, of the living. Go. That was another miracle completely out of the blue. It came to me, the March of the Living, and I've gone nine times with students, nine years in a row. And that has become my life. I mean, Wow, the March of the Living is definitely a part of your core values. You, we have a few minutes left. You want to touch on that, or you think you yeah. shared a bit? You said the next one is uh, next yes, year. Yes, because the the twenty twenty March of the Living and this this year's March of the Living have been cancelled. I went from two thousand eleven okay. to two thousand nineteen, uh, nine times, and. I, I hope to go on my 10th time next year, just before I turn 90. <laughs> next year. And Wonderful. Next, that would be, be your 10th time. <laughs> so I'm walking my two miles a day every day. Time. I hope to stay in good shape because I want to go again with students. Yes. This March of the Living brings together to Auschwitz 10 to 12,000 18 year old people, young people, just before they graduate from high school with their their survivors and their their staff and their uh, their historians and leaders and we march out of Auschwitz on Holocaust Day the the Jewish Holocaust Day we march to Birkenau which is about a mile away a mile and a half away and that is the march of 10 to 12,000 18 year olds out of Auschwitz a very symbolic 
that Hitler didn't manage mm. to destroy the Jews. <laughs> very, very uh, powerful message. In, in, in fairly that. fair uh, um, uh, silence. We spend a week in, in, in Poland and then we go for a week to Israel and we walk again to the, to the Western Wall in Israel um, on uh, Independence Day. So they are very close together, the Holocaust Day and Independence Day. That's incredible. And so for your 10th anniversary, we hope to hear back <laughs> <Okay>. from you. <laughs> This has been the Journey to Lovely podcast. Please stay connected with us online on Instagram at the Journey to Lovely. I am so grateful for your contribution, Eva, and for being able to have this historical conversation. Listeners, please support Eva in her wonderful, courageous story. Her book is called Eva's Uncommon Life, Guided by Miracles. It is available on Amazon, on Kindle, and in the ebook format. So make sure you support Eva. And again, thank you so much, dear Eva. What a wonderful way to end Women's History Month. If you want to share your thoughts on this interview, you can reach out to me personally on Instagram at Claudrine, that's C-L-A-U-D-R-I-N-E, or email me at Claudrine at gmail.com or contact at journeytolovely.com. Again, thank you all for tuning in. This has been the Journey to Lovely podcast with your host, Claudrine Arnell, and our phenomenal guest, Holocaust survivor, inspiring author, and this month's lovely icon, Eva Perlman. Thank you. <laughs>